Okay, so I am here outside. You might be able to hear the airplane overhead, and I am trying to put together all my thoughts for this grand master plan, which um, I don't know. Um, we'll see if it works. So basically, the grand master plan is that I find a way to connect Macbeth to Black Lives Matter. Um, I feel like it's, um, it is connected, actually, and I feel like it's important for students to see um, the connections between their lives today and the sometimes what seems like the very distant path, uh, past, although, of course, in reality, it's not that distant at all if we look at the whole history of recorded time, as it were. So basically, this is kind of what I'm understanding about Macbeth so far. So here's some things. We have the fact that there was the real Macbeth and the real Duncan and the real Malcolm, and they were different. And the real Duncan was young, and the fictionalized Duncan was old. And the real Duncan was a, a kind of a failure and a mess, and he was losing battles and losing uh, you know, ground for Scotland. And uh, he was young. And so, uh, actually, Mac it, Macbeth was looking at how do we keep this kingdom together, possibly, um, and we can't let Duncan go around ruining everything. So that's a real possibility about how that was playing out. Um, so, and then Macbeth ended up ruling fairly well, I think, for 17 years, whereas the play Macbeth, the fictional Macbeth, was only there for a year. So that's, um, that's some information that's worth knowing. Some other information that's worth knowing is more about why uh, Shakespeare would change it because um, actually um, King James, you know, you don't want to make a play for King that says it's good to get rid of kings, ineffectual or otherwise. No king wants to think about that. So you're going to make a king... Um, uh, Duncan wise and just, and you're going to make Macbeth um, uh, just, you know, overly and selfishly ambitious and, and evil, or at least flawed. So those are some of the things that are going on. Now, another thing that I I'm going to look at, eventually I have to sort of see how um, Scotland's survival, um, you know, in basically 1000 and then how it goes sort of through the middle ages to ultimately get to the point where, um, they, uh, the Scottish are being removed from their land. So there was, I think the Highland removal, I think it was called. And basically seemingly what happened was I, I as feudalism started to, um, go away and capitalism started to come in, land could be sold. Um, and so they wanted to use the land for more profitable uh, reasons. So I think I'm thinking, although I'm not sure yet, that um, probably wealthier people were able to buy up more and more pieces of the land and get more of their own power and sort of little fiefdoms going because they were able to now purchase it. Um, and the land, they no longer wanted to rent that land <clears throat> to people who might have been there for generations. So they were uh, raised the rents and couldn't um, because they wanted to actually use the land for grazing sheep, I believe. So they wanted it to be less of, uh, you know, they wanted to make more money from their land. And you could not produce the same income from small farming as you could from wool. So that's another thing that happens. So now you have all these Highlanders who have been moved off of their land. And um, you have Walter Scott who writes about 
you know, just the tragedy of these people who have been a powerful and noble people and they, um, you know, have lost it all, but there are still some remember the times of the power and the fiery cross that they burned. So you start to get some of these, um, you know, anyway, images that we later see associated with the KKK. And this is all in documented in books. I have a book actually about Robert Burns that talks a little bit about that. So, but I'll have to nail that down a little bit better. Um, so there's Robert Burns and Sir Walter Scott are these two um, Scottish writers that have a lot of influence on people who come here. So anyway, a lot of them come here. They do come here because they've lost their land. They've been displaced and they end up a lot of them in Appalachia initially. And, um, they uh, they're they're sort of brought over because they had been sort of a, had a warrior culture for a long time. They'd been fighters, and it may have been to the advantage, um, you know, of of the people here to have warriors who are willing to come, you know, be combative with the Indians and Native Americans and so forth. So they sort of filled a need uh, to settle land and to defend the land. Um, and they also had their own need because they'd lost everything. But little by little, they started to build things up and eventually they became slave owners and then plantation owners. Uh, and there were many, some large Scottish owned plantations, you know, American owned, but people who had, uh, you know, strong cultural ties to their original homeland. And then you get the Civil War and that land is all gone. And once again, they see themselves not, they don't see the, the people who are slaves as being similar to, although, you know, much worse treated than they might have been in sort of, you know, losing their feudal inheritance. They see themselves, they see that themselves now in the same position again. They see some parity between them being this they they themselves as slaveholders losing their land and their plantations and um and having you know the the south burned to what was done to them before and so they uh start uh, you know first person starts kind of a fraternal organization of six people i think that was in pulaski tennessee maybe and um, and at first, it's just kind of a friendly association of, of of Civil War veterans who have come home to very little. Their town burned down, uh, and they've lost their businesses. And then they go from there to start to put on these kinds of plays with a lot of costumes and um, have you know a lot to do with you know um, putting you know putting black people back in their place, um, being victorious over them, subjugating them. And that goes from being play acting to being reality. And, uh, you know, the, so the whole, Scot you know, the Scottish um, first grand flash master, whatever wizard they, whatever they are, uh, he, he burns this cross, which is basically, you know, very much of an image out of Sir Walter Scott. They love Sir Walter Scott. And, um, there's also some association between Walter Scott and other aspects of of um, the KKK and just even fighting in the type of, um, you know, uh, warrior culture that was promoted that also contributed to the Civil War. Uh, so I'm going to look at that a little bit more. That's just basically where I am right now, but I just kind of want to keep a record of my thoughts. Um, 
but in any event, I kind of came upon that because I was reading um, As I Lay Dying by Faulkner and reading some literary criticism about Faulkner. And that's where they started talking about, you know, the sort of the racism of the Scottish Highlanders in the South. And um, I thought, well, that's really interesting because at the one point I'm reading Faulkner for myself. And on the other hand, I'm preparing Macbeth to teach it for next year and here these two things started to intersect and I think that it would be interesting to teach those intersections so kids can see that actually what seems when you read a play that was written whatever 400 plus years ago about something a thousand plus years ago or, or 900 I think it's the 1100 maybe um, 900 years ago that it seems like it's very distant but in fact, these histories, when you look at sort of the domino effect and the chain of events, that they're not nearly as distant as it might seem.